Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do What about the no-names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies Their guys, remember that guy some guys now now this is interesting they're playing off the ball and they're gonna play two guys on bryant wade and eddie jones jermaine jones to inbound bryant gets doubled kobe bryant amazing it didn't go in the way with his history and all of the drama and this whole remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks it's me one of your host james Turns out I'm also replacing Al Michaels, and I have brought along with me my very own Hubie Brown. Now, here's a guy that knows how to put together an introduction. He lets you know who he is, and he establishes the basis of the show. That is how you introduce a podcast. Um, I'm not Hubie Brown. I am Diaz. I do love Hubie Brown. But I do love our special guest that we have with us today. He's a man that will never miss the buzzer. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, that's right. It's me, the very special guest, Xavier, who is the most deadly three-point shooter in the history of the NBA, as I have never once missed a professional shot. Zero. LeBron can't say that. Nobody has missed less shots in the NBA than Xavier Perez. That is 100% a fact that no one can dispute. Never forget, Xavier, you also have the same amount of rings as John Stockton and Carl Malone. That's true. And combined and much less deserving charges of going to jail like the two of them should both do. Your ring to sexual assault charge ratio is so much lower than those two. It should be you in the Hall of Fame instead, is all I'm saying. Because you're a Hall of Fame guest too, and Xavier, I wonder if perhaps there is something that is making memories for you right now. Yes, yeah, so this is going to be a very soccer-centric day for me. Do you guys want to start with the good, the bad, or the random? I like random. So the random is that Karen Holmgard scored her first ever goal for Everton in the Women's Super League last week as Everton beat West Ham 1-0. The only reason I bring this up is because it was assisted by her twin sister, Sarah, the first set of twins to play in the Women's Super League. And I like that a lot, just... Everton happens to randomly have these Danish twins on the bench. Do we have an instance of that on the male side? Do we have any Sedin twins in soccer? Ooh, I'm sure there has been at some point, but I can't think of any. I can think of plenty of brothers, but not any like actual twins. I look forward to the day that those twins inevitably are sold to Newcastle as Everton further plummets into administration and they have no (laughs) choice but to give into our great oil money. I mean, there's still a couple years left until, for the Newcastle women to make it to the uh, Women's Super League. We'll We're see what coming. happens until then. We're coming. We did. We drew Man United in the FA Cup, which we're probably going to get steamrolled. But if we don't, Bobby thought I was obnoxious after we beat them in the Premier League this season. He thought I was obnoxious when we knocked them out of the Carabao Cup. If our women go into, they're probably not going to play it at Old Trafford. But whatever the women's equivalent of Old Trafford is, and they beat those Reds, you'll never hear the end of it, Bobby. You will (laughs) never hear the end of it. 
Real quick, speak of Man U, exactly one twin example we can pull from recent time. The DeBoer twins, the Dutch DeBoer twins, Frank and Ronald, had six clubs apparently all together along with hundreds of caps for the Dutch team between the two of them the past couple decades. So there's one that we've got. But Xavier, that's random. Let's hear what bad is. Yeah, so the bad news is that a new report from FIFA and FIFPro came out about online abuse of women's players during the Women's World Cup. To no one's surprise, the U.S. Women's National Team was abused at a absolute historic rate. The U.S. Women were abused more than double any other team. There was one other outlier of Argentina, which was a weird outlier because it was predominantly about one specific person woman named Yamila Rodriguez, who, despite being Argentinian, said that she liked Ronaldo better than Messi. So that caused a bunch of Argentinians to hate her. But it was like very specifically targeted at her for not liking Messi more than Ronaldo. So it's a weird outlier. But I mean, that's like a matter of patriotism for Argentinians. Like It's a wild thought to have out loud if you do have it. Yeah. So like even the graph that they posted, it, it says American players top the chart. Predominantly politically motivated abuse targeted two to three key players, and then says Argentinian players are in second position due primarily to the targeting of one player. This graph it shows the, the rate of abuse. The U.S. is at four thousand. Argentina is like slightly over fifteen hundred, all because of the one person. And then England and Spain are the only other teams between five hundred to one thousand. So other than Yamila Rodriguez being hated for not liking Messi more than Ronaldo. The US women were abused at four times the rate of any other team, and on average, 10 to 15 times the rate of any other team for political reasons. The most targeted player being Megan Rapino, as we might have all expected. Yeah. And that, like, the other stats they had is that one in five players of the Women's World Cup received targeted discriminatory abuse or threatening messaging, and that players of the Women's World Cup were 29% more likely to be targets of online abuse compared to players representing their countries at the 2022 Men's World Cup, despite smaller overall fan engagement on social media platforms with the Women's World Cup. I mean, the real shocker in those statistics is you had to think Spain's ex-abuse was going to be pretty low after winning the tournament. But standing up against sexual assault, you got to really hand it to them, continues to really contribute to that abuse net statistic. It's incredible. It's incredible how women standing up for themselves will almost always earn a stern uptick on that abuse metric. It's good you say that because the athletic article specifically has a bullet point that says the final between Spain and England produced a massive spike of abusive content, especially following the incident involving former Spanish FA president Luis Rubiales. Quote, these incidents generate the largest spike of abusive, discriminatory and violent content across the tournament. So while the game in England used abused. and before that game, they were at like zero abuse compared to the U.S., which went out rounds earlier at a shit ton. And then a Spanish player gets sexually assaulted and then they get abused. I would love to see, speaking of graphs, the Venn diagram of people who want to protect women's sports from trans athletes and people who verbally abuse Megan Rapino online. The answer is a lot. The answer is it's a circle. I was going to say, it does seem about 360 degrees, that Venn diagram. You you would accidentally think you were looking at a pie chart with 100%. That's all pretty bad. But Xavier, you do have something to wash it all away? Yeah, it's good stuff. First of all, I want to shout out the Arsenal women. 
who won again, this time beating top of the league Chelsea 4-1 in Chelsea's biggest league defeat in five years. You know, they usually steamroll through every team, hence why the U.S. women were willing to spend a ton of money to get Emma Hayes as their new coach. And they did this in front of a record crowd of over 59,000 people at the Emirates. We've talked about this before, but in every single away game that Arsenal women have played in this year, they've set attendance records. And in all their home games, it used to be that they would only ever play, you know, at, at their own smaller stadium. But because the demand is so high for Arsenal women now, they have been 50,000, 55,000, close to 60,000 at pretty much every home game to the point where almost all of their home games have been at the Emirates, unless there was some other scheduling thing that kept that from being a possibility. What they're doing for the women's game, just in terms of like marketing and visibility, has been phenomenal, and it's been so exciting to see. And then on the men's side, I had the joy today of finding out that Mikel Arteta was cleared of all charges for bringing the game to disrepute by the FA. We had been waiting literally a month and a half for this. Arsenal fans had, at this point had just assumed that, like, all right, we know they're going to ban him for three games. They're just holding off so long that they can ban him for the big Liverpool game. But today, the independent panel that has to review these things and has the hearings put out a 37-page report. It's actually hilarious. It's possibly one of my favorite like legal readings uh, of all time. The one that is getting a lot of play is... <laughs> It's actually a mistaken thing that Arteta clarified was not the case, like in his actual hearing. Quote, the word disgrace used by Mikel Arteta in the interviews has a very similar spelling and pronunciation to the Spanish desgracia. The Spanish word has connotations of misfortune, tragedy, or bad luck, rather than the connotations of the English equivalent, which suggests contempt, dishonor, or disrespect. While the English meaning may lead to interpretations of abuse or insult, this was not the intended meaning of the comments. Then there's a footnote saying, Mikel Arteta made clear he was not suggesting that he had been intending to use the Spanish word. He explained that he intended to use the English word with knowledge of the English meaning of that word. (laughs) And that there was a miscommunication between him and the club when they submitted the statement. So there's just an entire paragraph about this linguistic thing. And then a footnote saying, no, he meant disgrace in English. Uh, But two of the relevant things that were important for this, the English FA in their argument, because essentially this is in in front of an independent panel. The FA is giving one side and Arteta is giving the other. The FA contended that Mikel Arteta's status was relevant to the substance of the charge. In other words, that words spoken or conduct committed by an individual such as Arteta could breach FA rule E3, even though the same words or conduct committed by a lower profile individual might not amount to a breach of FA rule E3. So in this hearing, the FA said, It's not that he said it, it's that he's too important. It looks bad if he says it. If a lesser manager with not as much of a profile says it, it's not a charge. And Arsenal and Arteta's lawyer took them the task on that, and they agreed. It's either a charge or it's not. It shouldn't matter who says it. You can't legally codify with great power comes great responsibility. Mikel Arteta is not a role model. Oh, God, this is the Charles Barkley rule. It's very interesting, just the whole thing. It, like, There's a lot of inconsistencies brought up. The FA's whole thing was they picked three interviews that Arteta gave in highlighted words that they considered bringing the game into disrepute. But then they just showed other instances of 
the exact same language by Arteta and other people that had not gotten charged. So they were just choosing random language that they wanted to charge at random times with no consistency. The other big thing was Arteta successfully convinced, you know, this independent panel that he was speaking generally about the weakness of the VAR processes and the need for improvement in the general standard of the VAR. And the panel said, hey, the Premier League a month beforehand put out a big statement saying our VAR process is bad. We need to improve it after the Liverpool Tottenham fuck up. How can you punish him and charge him for one, something that you say might not be a, a charge if someone not as important as Arteta said it, and two, is something that you yourself put out a statement saying needed to be improved a month beforehand. And so I've never seen a charge like this where there's like an open clearing. Usually it's just give a fine or they get the three-game ban. But this was a fascinating read as someone who is a lawyer because the FA tried to do a law thing, but realizing they had no legal reason or any actual breach of any rules, they tried throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what stuck, and it turned out nothing did. So I don't care about the Newcastle result anymore. Congratulations, Diaz. <laughs> it, it was just fun to read this, and I'm glad that Arteta won't get a further ban so he could be on the touchline. Well, Diaz, we've teased that your recent soccer experience and, and its relative goodness uh, is perhaps what's made memories for you recently. I'll touch on it briefly. There was about a 40 to 45 minute span yesterday where we lived in the beautiful world where if results held, Newcastle was going through to the next round of the Champions League. And we've had literally an entire starting 11 and it wouldn't be our first choice starting 11 but it's some guys who would be, some who would be like great sub off the bench. We can field an entire team with our injuries right now. It's absurd. And we've had the same 11 starting three games a week for the past three weeks. And it started to catch up with them a little bit in the recent Premier League games. But you go up one nothing, You just look like the better team. PSG even goes down one nothing, So we're like, oh, shit. Like It's really just all right in front of us right now. And, you know, there's a great saying in Ted Lasso that goes, it's the hope that kills you. And it was those moments where if we just held on, we would have been through. But Christian Pulisic, of course, it has to be him as well. The American equalizes at 1-1. And then what I love is Newcastle, if they just settled on 1-1 and were like, okay, like park the bus, let's just play for the draw. They would have gotten the Europa League spot, but they didn't do that. They poured numbers forward. They were desperately trying to get the winner. And because of that, they got caught on the counter and they lost 2-1. So all of that, fine and well. Newcastle is so far ahead of schedule. I wasn't expecting Champions League for probably about five years after the takeover. So for it to happen two years after, really our first full season under new ownership, we finished in the Champions League spot. Remarkable and, you know, to be celebrated. But there's one other thing that, like, I want to talk about. And I don't really have anything new to contribute to this conversation i would just like this conversation to be had on this platform because in about 10 to 15 years people are going to be talking about that guy from the italian family that grew up in jersey and got to come in and start for the new york giants we, and we just got to talk about tommy devito our podcast was like created to honor guys like tommy bit. devito we did but we've mentioned tommy devito his his name's been said on the airwaves but i couldn't agree more Molte bene. It's I cannot believe it. And like, truly, 
I, I think everybody started to coalesce around like, oh, this is just football slash Italian Jeremy Lin. We're, mm-hmm. I think we've all now been able to contextualize this as that. And for Jeremy Lin, the game where he really launched into the national conversation was, I think it was a Sunday night basketball against the Lakers. Kobe had just said, I don't know who that is. Lin went in and dropped 38 on national television as the whole world's watching. And Monday night against the Packers, that was that game for Tommy DeVito. We already knew about his dad, and his dad is fantastic with, you know, doing the 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 Italian hand gesture celebration. Everyone knows the Italian fingers. You all know exactly what we mean. Everybody knows what the Italian fingers are. And then on Monday night, like, I don't even know if this actually is his agent. This is it probably is. just it, like, is it? We know everyone that sure. swears. Every single source that I can find, because I had a feeling that we would talk about it at some point. Yeah, no, the Al Capone looking motherfucker truly does seem to be his agent. But like, you could also just tell me like, Tommy DeVito just hired like his fucking neighborhood friend to be his agent because like, he's an undrafted quarterback. Like, he doesn't really need an agent. But sure, you can be my agent. And now like, the bit's gone so far that, you know, he now becomes a side character in this whole story. And I mean, truly, like, I think Joe Buck's done a good job. He's lightened up a lot over the years, but he still can be somewhat curmudgeonly. But when he's laughing hysterically as they go to break, as Tommy DeVito's dad and the agent are exchanging cheek kisses and there's kisses everywhere. Like, and when Joe Buck is in on something and acknowledging how fun it is, this is truly just a moment in time. And like. I want to just celebrate it now because the Eagles do play the Giants two times in the last three weeks. And I just know like the Eagles might win both of those games, but there's going to be at least one drive. The Eagles are clinging to a four point lead and fucking Tommy DeVito runs over Darius Slay to get a first down. And I'm just going to get that fucking pit in my stomach, the same pit in my stomach that I get when the Sixers play the Celtics where I'm just like, I can't believe this motherfucker is doing this to us right now. But Right now, Tommy DeVito, he's not that fucking guy, which we will get into a little bit later on. But I just, in this moment in time, Tommy DeVito is perfect. More time will go by. He will lose games. The magic will lose its luster at a certain point. But as we speak right now, Tommy DeVito is perfect. And we just need this episode to encapsulate that moment. Imagine being Josh Dobbs four weeks ago and not knowing that you were going to get overshadowed as the season's best backup quarterback. Oh yeah. He's like, he's, he's already old news. I mean, he's now Nick Mullins is now mm-hmm. overtaking him. Yeah. And we'll talk about quarterbacks in a second. I do also have a shot and a chaser for making memories today. I want to start with the shot. Uh, and I want to take this shot in honor of a number of my friends in the DMV area who do, despite, you know, their better judgment support the capitals and the wizards because uh, some fascist fuck is trying to tear them away from them. And there's a lot of things that can be said about that. But a piece that was passed around yesterday, and this is, I think, the only thing that I'll leave on the Washington teams moving to Virginia, is this piece that Spencer Hall of the Shutdown Fullcast, perhaps a future friend of the show, I'm going to start saying that aspirationally. I'm going to start describing people as future friends <laughs> of the show. Um. But Spencer Hall wrote this piece shortly after the Atlanta baseball team left Turner Field, and he went on like a fake urban exploration of it, treating it as this very dangerous, exotic environment, because clearly they had to leave this decrepit stadium that had been used for a couple decades. He takes a couple shots of commemorative bricks 
on the concourse there. And like, I work in a museum where we also have similar commemorative bricks and I've talked to people that have purchased those before. And I saw the picture of these Brits for birthdays and weddings and anniversaries and bar and bar mitzvahs and all of this. And like, that is an attempt by fans to purchase some physical manifestation of the fandom and the attachment that they have some attempt to immortalize their passion for their teams. And it sucks to see how easily teams discard that and leave that behind. So that's all we need to say about that. Let's get a little bit happier by going back for a moment to September 7th, 2008, when a couple of things are happening, we're getting ready for the big Obama McCain election with, you know, Joe Biden, there's the running mate. National Treasure Book of Secrets is the highest grossing film in the country. And Whatever You Like by T.I., top song. Nick Cage, still working. Dream Scenario, just came out recently. T.I. is still kicking. He's working on what will be his final album. And Joe Biden, still kicking around doing some stuff that we don't necessarily agree with. And you know who else is still kicking around? Someone that I saw that Sunday, September 7th, 2008, as the Ravens beat the Bengals. That guy is Joe Flacco. And Joe Flacco had a win. Goddamn right is correct. He had a win in that debut, put together an incredible body of work. We all know that Joe Flacco is elite. We all know that he's a Super Bowl winning quarterback. And we now all know that he is with a fifth franchise in his career after having some itinerant time after that Ravens stint with Denver, Philly, the Jets. He's now, after spending most of this season on the couch, with the Browns as of November 20th. He signed with Cleveland after the Ravens murdered Deshaun Watson, which was sick, and Dorian Thompson Robinson got a concussion, much less sick. And so let's not there. let's not just gloss over Temple Legend, Philip PJ Walker did get to play and True. was horrendous and did not get injured and was benched on the quality of his play, which is sad. But we need to at least acknowledge Temple they, Legend. They Philip watched Walker. him play and remembered, oh right, yeah, you were the Temple quarterback. Ugh. This ain't the Houston Roughnecks. (laughs) (laughs) But here comes Joe Flacco to, you know, just be a body. Loses to the Rams in that Browns debut. But then they did this last week, beat Jacksonville 31 to 27. Now, to be clear, fuck the Browns. But this win is special because he got that first win all the way back on September 7th, 2008. He, this last week, got his 100th win as a starter, moving into sole possession of 19th all-time. He has passed Alex Smith, who he was tied with at 99, just behind Jim Kelly. I think he's got a chance to catch perhaps him and Warren Moon, who are right there at 101 and 102. Editor's note, make that 101. The Browns defeated the Bears 20-17. to Joe Flacco, now tied with Jim Kelly all-time. Probably not going to get Terry Bradshaw at 107, but like... He is, you know, now in the top 20 all time of wins by a starting QB. And the PS de resistance of this ridiculous game is the ridiculous stat line. Because in the year of our Lord, 2023, Joseph Vincent Flacco threw the ball 45 times for 26 completions, three touchdowns, which by the way, moves him into a tie with Jim Kelly. Once again, 31st all time passing touchdowns. Second editor's note, with two additional touchdowns for the Browns against the Bears, 239 moves him ahead of Jim Kelly. Eat your fucking heart out. I had a lot of Hall of Famers here. I'm not trying to say that Joe Flacco is a Hall of Famer by any means, but Joe Flacco is more important than that. He is truly one of the greatest guys of all time, and you know that because he leaves you little gifts in there, because I do need to point out that with those 26 passes, 
in his 100th win ever. 311 total yards does come out to 6.9 yards per attempt. Joe Flacco, the nicest quarterback in the league. Here's what I'm going to say for the Joe Flacco Hall of Fame case. And I'm not going to argue it as vociferously as I argue the Jimmy Rollins and Chase Utley Hall of Fame cases. Because I don't think there is as much of a case. But here is the case. If Eli Manning is a Hall of Fame quarterback, all we're saying is that Joe Flacco is a Billy Cundiff missed field goal away from being a Hall of Fame quarterback. And if that's all we're saying is separating him from being in the Hall of Fame, then he should be in the Hall of Fame. That That would be exactly my argument. Hey, Joe Flacco has one of the best comebacks in NFL history, beating the Browns last year in the game where the Jets were down two touchdowns with a minute and 55 seconds left, and then scored two touchdowns in 60 seconds. I-95 legend, Joe Flacco, truly, as you said, Diaz, I think really only held back by Billy Cundiff, that fucking guy. You know, we take the phrase guy largely to be a very positive thing here. But, you know, Billy Cundiff is maybe a perfect example of when guys go wrong. And partially because I thought this was kind of be a funny bit with the ability to select the category for this week. I kind of want us to channel that. And so I just wanted us to find people who fit the description of this fucking guy. While I wanted this to be funny, I will also acknowledge that this very much comes from a place of being inspired by one of your stories, Diaz. It was during Mills Lane's time that you told me you were certain I was going to be aware of a fight and me not having the biggest boxing background. I had doubt in you and I apologized for my doubt because you did clarify that I was in fact aware of this fight and I was aware of that fight for something that happened there rather than the fight itself. And so I kind of want to turn the tables on you. I want to talk about a guy, Diaz, and you, Xavier, that I'm confident both of you know, but I don't think anything's going to ring in your head when I say the name James Miller. However, much as it did when you, Diaz, initially told part of this story, something will ring your head when I say fan man. Good old fan man. Fan man is who I am a fan of this particular week. Now, look, we can just say right off the bat here, this is not an athlete. There are no statistics I can point to for, well, I mean, I could make up some statistics about this. All of the famous moments for fan man are going to take place. Well, I shouldn't say that. Almost all of the famous moments are going to take place in sporting events. There is a very specific one that won't. And you know what? We're playing Calvin Ball anyway. So today I'm going to talk about James Miller. James Jarrett Miller, specifically. That's the name that he is given when he was born on October 28th, 1963, in Harvard Grace, Maryland. He's a Maryland boy. And he's born there right around the same time as the Ripken boys. Just to give us some context, he's three years after Cal, sorry, Cal Jr., I should say, and one year before our very favorite fuckface, Billy Ripken. It always Uh, killed me about that town that it's pronounced Harvard the Grace because, like, the one time that I thought I was being like a cultured person, I was like, oh no, it's Hav de Gras. It's like, no, nah, Harvard man, that's Harvard de Grace. Harvard de Grace. <laughs> Harvard de Grace. <laughs> uh, it's Thames Street in Baltimore. But anyway, unlike the Ripkins, he is not going to live that same parochial life where they stay here forever. Because in 1975, just you know, 12 years after he's born, family moves to Alaska. At first, they're there because they're on a 20-acre mining claim that his dad made, like, right by the Canadian border, 12 miles from even the closest real road. And after about a year, that's just not going well. So they move to something that is sort of a town called Tok 
just like at this fork in the Alaska highway, very slow going. There's a lot of time to kill as you're growing up there. And it's around this time that James, who is going by his middle name, Jared, but he is James and he is there with three other brothers. Uh, His brother, Eric, later on, he's going to give us some in-depth info about kind of what they were like when they were growing up. James was apparently a very voracious reader. He was super into science books, uh, got a little bit into explosives. And (laughs) he also had this deep love and deep desire to fly or a fly. They would apparently, Eric says, build really giant kites. And then they would jump from tall trees while hanging onto these kites. They get older, they kind of graduate to paragliding. And after graduating high school, Miller is going to go to the University of Alaska Anchorage Sticking with the sciences, he gets an associate's degree in computer science and so spends a little bit of time in Alaska with this as his main money-making job. And on the side, he's able to still fly, but he decides there is somewhere he would rather fly. And that is in the Las Vegas Valley. Not Las Vegas specifically, Henderson, Nevada. It's the second biggest town in the area. The Las Vegas Valley, now he's got this big, wide-open desert where he can still work with computers and in his free time, continue his passion of flying. I do love that Alaska is like largely his origin story because this just feels very Alaska man. Like this is the Iditarod of the air. Yes, I fully agree. We're, and we're going to like, we will be back in Alaska later. We will absolutely return to Alaska. But a lot of important stuff is going to happen here in Nevada. Around his 30th birthday, he calls Eric. We're just having a conversation on the phone. And James tells Eric he's planning something big. And given that, as I mentioned, he has history with explosives, Eric is a little bit worried. Even if he's just going to do a flying stunt, this is still within two decades of a pretty famous plane crash that happened at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. Uh, If you want to learn more about this, Section 1, really good, about 40-minute documentary from Dorktown. Always love their stuff, and it'll tell you about how a plane crashed into a stadium like minutes after a game, and people only survived because the Colts have been getting blown out so bad by the Steelers that everyone had left the stadium early. This is all to say, Eric knows that James, you know, mostly does harmless stunts, mostly intends to do harmless stunts, but there's a little bit of concern. Even with that, I doubt that he was prepared for what was about to happen. This is when we are going to overlap with Diaz's story a little bit, because it is now November 6th, 1993, and Vegas is preparing us for a rematch of a fight from just about a year ago. That is when Riddick Bowe knocked out Evander Holyfield to become heavyweight champion of the world. There had been some controversy in the years since. He'd had a weird fight against Lennox Lewis. He threw the belt in the trash publicly at a press conference. But by the time that they've returned this year, like pretty much everything that has happened since that fight is not on the public's mind. They're concerned with this rematch of Bo v. Holyfield. They meet at Caesars Palace. They have a combined record, the two of them, of 63-1 and at this point. The only loss coming from when the two of them met previously. So the only time that one of them had to take a loss in all their matches. Ref is Mills Lane. Legendary Let's Get Ready to Rumble guy, Michael Buffer. He is here. Actress Demi Moore, coming hot off that few good men heat at this point, is here in attendance. Reverend Jesse Jackson is here. The leader of the Nation of Islam, Luis Farrakhan. Farrakhan? Farrakhan, right? Farrakhan. Yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, we've got confirmation. Uh, it is a star-studded affair, and it is a great fight. Bo starts off the fight in control, but Holyfield battles back. He takes rounds four through six, 
Round seven, Holyfield lands this massive right hook on Bo, but uh, he immediately starts retaliating, starting to get the momentum swinging back to him. And all of a sudden, at the minute 50 mark, Holyfield takes his eyes off his opponent. You should never do this in a boxing match, to be clear. Holyfield takes his eyes off because he can't help it. And Bo, he has said when he saw Holyfield's facial expression, he thought he'd seen King Kong. There is a lot of electrical rigging and whatnot, but this is an open-air venue. And descending from that cool night air in Nevada is Miller piloting a motorized paraglider. What that looks like, to those of you who have not seen videos or images of this before, he's got a small, what looks like a parachute on, as well as a you know bright jumpsuit, and then there is a large motorized fan behind him that is filling that paraglider with air, allowing him to have some amount of control over it. Not too much control. Now, he had circled Caesar successfully for like 10 minutes before here, because in the open air, pretty easy to manage. But now that he is dropping in, very predictably gets tangled up in all of that electrical rigging, all of the catwalks and whatnot. And when he lands awkwardly on the top rope, a bunch of things all start happening at once. I mentioned that Jesse Jackson and Luis Farrakhan were here specifically for a reason. Because they are there, everyone thinks like one of two things. Demi Moore was quoted later on saying she thought this was an act. You know, it's Vegas. People do silly stuff. (laughs) Most other people, like Bo and Farrakhan security, think that this is a terrorist attempt because there are two major political figures here and their lights popping off sounds a little bit like gunshots if you don't know any better. So they think that that man right there, James Miller, is a terrorist and they just start beating the absolute shit out of him as Diaz informed us, sending him to the hospital. It is an all-time ass-whooping. Like, their simple and sole goal was just to inflict as much damage as possible with their fists. And, like, there weren't even, like, there, there weren't weapons used is, like, what's most impressive about it. Like, it is just an old-school beatdown. There may have been some blunt objects that got grabbed nearby. There were no, like, weapon weapons. But based on a couple testimonies, I should say, some blunt objects may have been grabbed. For the record, he is, by my count, one of four people sent to the hospital from this incident. So we have Miller himself, of course. Bo's 82-year-old trainer, Eddie Futch, suffers heart palpitations, has to get taken in and checked out, does end up being fine. An aide, Bernard Brooks, he needs stitches for a cut just over his head. Very, very minor, but does get taken in for that. Bo's pregnant wife, Judy, heard those lights popping. She grew up in a rough part of Brooklyn. She is one of the people who was like, oh shit, there are gunshots here. They're trying to kill Jesse Jackson and or Luis Farrakhan. And so she faints. She's taken away in an ambulance. Jesse Jackson rides along in the ambulance with her. And like, before she rides off, sorry, before she rides off, Riddick's like, hey, sh- should I go with my wife, guys? Manager's telling them, no, you got to stay. We don't know what the fuck is going to happen with this fight because Michael Buffer, the guy who tells everyone get ready to rumble, he's hopped on the mic to keep everyone from not rumbling. He's keeping the calm. Meanwhile, the still like relatively new executive director of the gaming commission, Mark Ratner, he and Mills Lane are trying to figure out like, okay, so what the fuck do we do? Uh, they had, because Ratner was once upon a time himself, also a referee, stopped the time immediately when Miller landed down. They're thinking about just canceling the round and moving on to eight at one point. They do eventually resume. Holyfield wins by decision. And the reason that the scores end up being split is this seventh round. 
All three judges have a different outcome for it. One gives it to Holyfield, one gives it to Bo, one gives it a split decision. Miller dropping in here is hugely consequential in just the history of this heavyweight belt. And it is a hugely eventful moment, so much so that it is the very first Ring Magazine event of the year. This is something that is now awarded every year, along with many of their other year-end prizes, uh, or honorifics, I should say. I don't think there's any prize that James Miller receives for this. But the very first ever in 1993 Ring Magazine event of the year is the Fan Man event. Not only, like, he is, I guess he is the the Jay Burwanger of the Ring Magazine event of the year. He is the Jay Burwanger. I, well... I'm going to disagree with that slightly because Jay Burwanger, after he got his honorific, said he was done. And if James Miller was done with one of these, this would be a fun story. But it would not really, James Miller wouldn't have so much of a story. This would just kind of be an event. James Miller is arrested briefly after he is released from the hospital. He's released from their custody on bail. It's uh, misdemeanor dangerous flying as well as trespassing. But I'm glad to know that dangerous flying is something that we do have codified on the books. And questions are about this. So Miller offers a chance for people to get some answers. He sends out a fax to multiple news organizations on Monday, November 8th, saying any journalist that is interested in getting some information can come to a secret location that we will provide you if you express interest. And you have to make a certain donation to a charitable organization. The papers did not say which one, but uh, they had to do this in order to be taken to where they would be met by James Miller for a press conference. So a couple people do it. Uh, I know that the Suns Colin Hurt does. There is a small Las Vegas TV crew. They meet with a quote-unquote Englishman, unnamed, who drives them 40 minutes into the desert by Boulder City. And that is where they meet Miller, who is dressed in fan man gear at the time. And instead of getting to ask him questions, Miller has prepared a script of questions and answers that he will read to them. And I'm going to read it to you verbatim as it was presented by the newspapers now. Question. Was Fan Man's landing in the ring intentional or was it an accident? Answer. There was no intention to land in or anywhere near Caesar's Palace. This was because of mechanical problems. Question. Were there any other people involved? Answer. No, none at all. Question. What is my physical condition after the beating I took from the crowd on Saturday night? Answer. As you can see, I'm practically unscathed. Question. Where did I launch from? Answer. I launched from flat ground approximately 12 miles away. Question. What is the machine on my back? Answer, it is called a Pago jet. Question, how much does it weigh? Answer, 48 pounds. Question, can it be steered? Answer, yes. At which point, he turns it on, flies off into the sunset, and they are driven back into Las Vegas. What an absolute showman. (laughs) And again, if this is where the story ended, it is a delightful tale. But I have more instances. As I mentioned, many of these take place at sporting events. And there's another sporting event that takes place a couple months later. It's the NFL playoffs. They're not the Las Vegas Raiders yet at this point. They are still the LA Raiders. They're hosting the Denver Broncos at the Coliseum. And this close game, later on, it's going to get blown apart by actually a trio of second half touchdowns. Does anyone want to tell me the Raiders running back playing for Coach Art Shell, who's going to score those touchdowns? Marcus Allen? If it's not Marcus Allen, then Napoleon McCallum. It is Napoleon McCallum. There we go, Diaz. Napoleon McCallum, Art Shell, they're there for the Raiders. Again, they're going to absolutely wreck the Broncos there. But really early on, there is Fan Man. 
is buzzing the stadium at an altitude of about a thousand feet, which isn't that much higher than the top of the Coliseum. He does eventually land down in the parking lot where he is arrested and once again charged with misdemeanors. Doesn't make it into the stadium this time. Later on, Super Bowl 28 happens. He is struck fear into the heart of sporting events everywhere at this point, just with two of them. All kinds of terror about him coming in. I want to point out, Super Bowl 28 is held in a dome and multiple newspapers were saying in the weeks leading up to it, oh my God, what if Fan Man comes out of nowhere? Guys, it's the Georgia Dome. Besides, he can't appear at the Super Bowl because sometime around January 29th, he goes across the pond. Despite the fact that there are pending charges against him in America. In England, on January 31st, he decides, I cannot interrupt just one kind of football. Arsenal, at this point, is traveling to Bolton. It's an FA Cup match versus the Wanderers. And at Burnden Park, it's eventually going to be a two-all draw. But play is suspended for a full minute early on. When they see a, at this point, still unidentified flying object, individual, they're not entirely sure. They call it the Birdman of Burnden Park. But they get a clue as to who it probably was just a little bit later, with the one instance that is not a sporting event. But I hope you will indulge me, because it is probably the silliest thing he ever did. One week later, it is February 5th, 1994. And on this lazy Saturday, the middle of the afternoon, in London's West End along the River Thames, people look up and they see Fan Man. He's flying along the river. He flies across Trafalgar Square. He flies down the mall, which is their like long tree-lined portion between Trafalgar Square and Buckingham Palace. And he lands on top of Buckingham Palace. The queen is not there at this point. This is fucking insane. Made more insane by the fact that he immediately drops Trow and reveals that his entire lower half is painted waist to toe, entirely green. It's just like, I'm almost upset with him because to have pulled this off, there needs to be some larger statement than, hey, look, my fucking ass is painted green. (laughs) There has to be more to it than that. So I will give you that this is the point where he starts to claim that there is more to this. Because Britain's had enough of this fucking guy. They bring him in, and he puts it forward to the British press, the British justice system. This was uh, a protest against violence. Just a general protest against violence. In fact, he kind of like retcons all of his bits. He's like, I started with that fight. I wanted to interrupt this big prize fight because I'm anti-violence. So he's like saying now that that has been the point of all of this the whole time, kind of pushing that back. Regardless of whether or not that's the reason, Britain's fucking done with this shit. So he does like face a short jail stint there. He instead accepts deportation in the United States. He is banned from the United Kingdom for life. In the U.S., at this point, his influence is being felt all over. Clark County is introducing, in March, a new update for laws about unruly event attendees. They want that to now include, and I quote, Folks that sneak in or drop in from the air, which I have to imagine does not refer to a large cross-section of people. People, just like with the Super Bowl, they're always looking over their shoulder now. Even if Fan Man's not there, the threat of Fan Man has infected the minds of America. Pete Sampras is at Indian Wells in California that year in April, but he's like looking up and he swears that he sees Fan Man off in the distance. That same month, Caesars hires a helicopter to stay above their Palace Arena Stadium the entire time for Holyfield's next fight against Moore. 
This is just out of fear of copycats because one of the specific parts of the charges and the sentence for our friend James Miller is that it did explicitly have to start his brief jail time coinciding with this fight so that he would be in jail while this fight was happening and could not do anything stupid during it. The very last thing that like happens in 1994, and this is like very brief. I only found this in a like one small newspaper clipping, but it reveals both answers and questions about James Miller. Some questions will get answered when we find out that the paraglider is now being returned to its owners, the British School of Paragliding. So we now do have a connection between him and Britain. However, he had apparently worked and trained there, yes, but then borrowed the equipment and performed the stunt without the school's knowledge. Supposedly still doesn't have any accomplices except for the quote-unquote Englishman that drove those reporters out to the random spot in the desert. Still don't have like a full motive. All of this like still remains unanswered as he at this point largely retreats from public life. He's more than happy to let this mystery linger as he goes back to Alaska and he remains in the public consciousness for a while. I would be remiss if I did not mention in the 1996 Simpsons episode, The Homer They Fall, in which Moe becomes Homer's boxing coach. This is one where Homer figures, oh, I can just get hit until people tire out and then I'll blow on them and they will fall over. When he's about to get murdered by Dredrick Tatum, the Mike Tyson analog, Moe swoops in with the fan man apparatus to save Homer's life. So if you've made it on The Simpsons like that, you have made it. But the incidents have made him not like a pariah, but it hasn't made life easy. Obviously, this is a notoriety, and it is a notoriety that comes back to bite him a little bit. So he returns to Alaska at the age of 30, specifically to Valdez, which is, yes, the Valdez associated with Exxon Valdez. And he does some computer work, maintains his flying hobbies, teaches others about it. We do have a bit of a sad turn here. I will preface this because at the turn of the millennium, he starts to experience a lot of heart problems. He has to get a couple surgeries for it, and he falls very, very deep into medical debt. Unfortunately, a story that happens often in this country, particularly at the turn of the millennium. He is difficult to employ because of his reputation. His health is suffering. He's covered in debts and bills, and he really does not see a way out. He figures that it would be easier for his family, for his pregnant girlfriend, Courtney, for all of them, just if he were not there. And so I do have to mention that on September 22nd, 2002, he goes missing quote-unquote, in Resurrection Pass. This is in the Alaskan wilderness. And it's way fucking out there. It is, in fact, so out there that six months later, when his body is found, he has hung himself. And rangers say, like, man, he picked a good place to do it if you wanted to never get found. Like, it is lucky that we happened to stumble across this body where we did. And so that does kind of close the mystery that his family had been experiencing, but knowing and kind of dreading what they expected to be the outcome. So we find out that he passed sometime around that time in 2002, probably a little bit younger than 40. Courtney and his now infant son scatter his ashes in that same wilderness. But there is one last thing that I want to mention from the publication that I got a lot of those uh, tidbits from Eric with, which was his obituary. Eric did mention one thing at the very end. I think most of the ashes were scattered in America. But apparently Eric and James had jokingly said for a while James wanted Eric to scatter some of his ashes in the UK because he wanted to flaunt that after all, the UK did only ban him for life. I just think that's the perfect thing. He entered a dark time and this is clearly not the kind of ending that we'd want for such a silly thing as the fan man. But it's good to know that even when he had his mortality facing him, there was still some of that spark, that insanity that clearly was there for this fucking guy who just 
got a motorized paraglider and decided to disrupt everything for one terrifying four-month period. And I was delighted by the story, and I just wanted to share James Miller, my guy, with you all and with our audience today. The fact that he basically crashed like the royal family's house and lived to tell the tale. Yeah, that that's really... I mean, who knows? May the wind have carried him back into the soil in front of Buckingham Palace. I I like that his his scale of escalation was huge prize fight, NFL playoff game, eh, midseason FA Cup match between Arsenal and Bolton, landing on Buckingham Palace. Seems like a little bit of an EKG (laughs) there with one dip in the middle. No disrespect meant to the Gunners there. Um, That's a more fun atmosphere than Buckingham Palace. I don't know. When you're pantsless and painted green, I think anywhere is a pretty fun atmosphere. But enough, enough about-, about Philadelphia Eagles tailgates. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, or Jets ones. Who knows? Green-based avian objects. Uh, but yeah, enough about that fucking guy. I'll go next. And when we came up with this category, I ruminated on how exactly the phrase is said. This fucking guy. There's a certain cadence to it. It's a little bit of venom, a little bit of animosity. And ultimately, you're saying it because this fucking guy has done some shit that probably hurt you. It's an impact one way or the other. And it got me to thinking, who is the first person in the sports world to be referred to in this manner? This fucking guy. And I think to answer that, we have to look at the sport of baseball And we have to go back to October 2nd, 1978 at Fenway Park. And we had to talk about Bucky fucking Dent. You were narrowing it down. Could have been Buckner. Could have been any number of guys. But Bucky fucking Dent. I mean, beautiful. Bucky fucking Dent. And the best part is that he was born with none of those names. Not one of them. Not Bucky fucking or Dent. He was born... Russell Earl O'Day on November 25th, 1951. And My world has Georgia. been shattered. You, you thought fucking was his middle name. It's not. It's not even... It's, it's the one a- I was the most confident about. <laughs> he was born to Denise O'Day and Russell Shorty Stanford. Now, this was a... Denise was not ready to be a mother. We'll put it that way. This was not the product of a stable, loving relationship in which two parents would be very equally prepared and fit to raise this child. It would not have been a good situation. So what happened instead, Russell was raised with the belief that it was actually James Earl Dent, who was his father, and James's wife, Sarah, was his mother. It wasn't until he was 10 years old that he learned that James Earl's sister, Denise, who he thought was his aunt his whole life, was actually his mother. I feel like that's a little bit less earth-shaking than the situations. It's like you thought your grandma was your mom and your sister was your mom. Like, at least they had the generations right. Yeah, I, I don't think it's quite as severe as that. Like, oh, yeah, you thought your mom was your sister. Your mom was your aunt is definitely better than your mom was your sister. I I think at least, but he knows his mom later on. He learns who his father is and he does strike up a relationship with them. They're on good terms. Now, all that to say a little bit of a a rocky, confusing childhood for our boy Bucky. But the one thing he knows he has is baseball. And when he graduates from Hialeah, Florida, 
He is the original Hialeah kid, not Nestor Cortez. He graduates from there and comes right out of high school in the 1970 draft. He is taken sixth overall by the Chicago White Sox. By the White Sox? Okay. Starts out in Chicago. He's in the minors for his first few years. He gets his call up in 1973. And quickly, he earns reputation as one of the best defenders in all of baseball. He has a great glove, which more than makes up for the fact that he doesn't have the best bat. He's a career 247 hitter, not a ton of pop, usually a towards the bottom of the order guy, but he's playing shortstop. And especially in this day and age, the emphasis is on having a good shortstop that is reliable. And kind of the book on Bucky is he might not have the athleticism of some of the other shortstops, but he will maximize his range every single time getting to a ground ball. And once he gets to a ground ball, he's not going to make a mistake. Every single season that he played in the major leagues, he finished with a fielding percentage that was above the league average for shortstops. And three times he led the league in fielding percentage. So far and away, this is his reputation. By 1975, he makes his first All-Star game still with the White Sox. And then going after 1976, his rookie wage deal is now expired. And he's set to become a free agent. He was making 50000 a year on that rookie contract. And the White Sox were prepared to offer him three years, 500000 But Bucky's agent, Nick Buonacanti, who sounds like he could be Tommy DeVito's agent. It's a fantastically <laughs> we, Italian name. Have we ever seen these two agents together in the same room? We have not seen them together. But we've seen them together in a room with Don Shula. Because Nick Buonaconte was actually a linebacker on the 72 Dolphins, was second team all pro that year. So Nick Buonaconte knows value when he sees it. This is the man you want representing you. He said, look, half a million over three years, not going to cut it. We know what Bucky's worth. The White Sox are not able to meet the demand. So they trade him off to the New York Yankees. Yankees are willing it's, to give him 76. He's feeling patriotic. See, they, they should have offered him a million dollars, but with 900,000 deferred until 10 years down the line. <laughs> Man, Bill Veck didn't know if he was still going to own that team 10 years later. <laughs> yeah. It's... Bill Veck was flying by the seat of his pants, man. <sighs> Good old Shohei. But unlike Shohei, Bucky did know his value. Bucky knew how to maximize his value. He ends up with the Yankees. The Yankees are more than happy to get an upgrade over Fred Stanley, who now will move to the bench. The first year, the Yankees are coming off of a World Series loss. They're looking to avenge this. 1977, Yankees go on to win the World Series. He gets a career best eight Boo. homers in that season. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm not booing Bucky Dent. Of course. I mean, but his batting average, he hit, he hit 247 for the season. He hit 242 in the postseason. Again, he's not Nothing out here, but career OPS was 631, to put it in context. And that's not something that they were looking at back then, but we can now look back in hindsight and say, wow, okay, this guy was not contributing much at the plate. Always batted towards the bottom of the order. But again, it's all about that glove. That's where he earns his name. 1978, Bucky leads the league in fielding percentage for shortstops uh, with a .981 fielding percentage. But through 162 games, pretty significant hit to his home run total. It's been cut in half, all the way down to four for the 1978 season. But 
as we know, 1978, they didn't only play 162. They did play 163. It's important to note how that season went for both teams because for so much of the season, this was that classic Red Sox collapse. The Red Sox were up 11 games on the Yankees in July. The Yankees won like 70% of their last 60 games. The Yankees were actually up three games with about 12 to play. And then the Yankees kind of had their own choke okay, on yes. the last. Perfect. <laughs> Go on. And going into the final day, the Yankees were up, but they lost. Red Sox won. So now we get game 163. Both teams have choked leads throughout this. And because of a coin flip, the game ends up being played at Fenway. This is the first game 163 in 30 years. The last one was contested in 1948. Cleveland went into Fenway and beat the Red Sox. So there is some bad juju in the air for Boston, but the the tension is cut swiftly by a Carl Stremski homer in the second inning. Puts the Sox up one nothing. Jim Rice knocks in an RBI single in the bottom of the sixth, makes it two nothing, and Mike Torres is rolling on the mound. Mike Torres was their opening day starter for the Sox. Started off very good that year, but lost his last six starts of the 1978 season. So came in on a bit of a cold streak, but at this point he's dealing. Comes back out for the seventh, gets the first out, gives up a couple singles. It's getting a little tense, but then the pinch hitter comes up, Jim Spencer. He lines out, and now, okay, there's two outs, bottom of the seventh. There's a little traffic on the bases, but we have the nine hitter up. It's Bucky Dent. We're going to be okay. Bucky takes the first pitch for a ball. The second pitch, he actually fouls off his foot, and like it's pretty bad. Like He's down for probably about a minute, 90 seconds. The trainer comes out, sprays some kind of thing on the foot. I don't know what it's supposed to do through the cleat. What he also did, he switched out his bat. He was willing to blame the bat, and he took the bat of center fielder Mickey Rivers instead. For whatever reason, it's never been said why he decided to switch his bat in that instant. Might have broken the first bat on that previous swing. Nobody will know. But on the very next pitch that Bucky then sees, he's choked up on the bat. It's a heavier bat. And he lifts one out to left field. When you watch the broadcast of this, I think the game camera puts it in perspective how shocking this homer was almost as much as anything else. Because he goes up a little bit. And then, like, instead of following the ball up over the green monster, he just whips down the Carl Yastrzemski and left. Because he's like, there's no way Bucky fucking Dent did this. There's no way Bucky Dent hit it over the monster and left. And the announcer even like, and that's a fly ball into left field, and it's gone. Like, there's shock in their voice. Bucky Dent, he of four home runs on the season, hits number five, and he puts the Yankees up 3-2. And Fenway is filled with Bostonians saying, Bucky fucking Dent. I just want to point out for one moment, manager of this Yankees team, Billy Martin, Manager that also decided to throw a little hissy fit about a decade later about someone else's bat, maybe not being set, but is perfectly fine with Bucky Dent switching out a bat in the middle of that bat here. Also, Billy Martin. That's all. Yankees suck. You know what Boston's problem was? They should have brought in Luis Tiant. He would have closed out that game. That's true. They needed him for the first game of the series. If you don't win game 163, there is no first game of the series. 
I do want to point out, Billy Martin was the manager for the Yankees in 1978. He was also the manager for the Yankees in 1979, but he was fired mid-season in 1978. So Billy Martin was actually not the manager for this game. I mean, sorry, James. Sorry, James. At some point, I I mean, just let allow me to say we will touch back on Billy Martin one more time in the story. Who Billy Um, Martin coming out of nowhere to return to a story? (laughs) So unlike him. But what's notable about the rest of this game is like it's so easy to think like okay, like Bucky then hit the homer and like that was the end of the game. Like there there was actually enough significant drama the rest of the way too. The Yankees got one more across in that inning, and then they would go up 5-2 in the top of the eighth. The Sox would pull two back in the bottom of the eighth off of Goose Gossage, who was the closer. So Goose Gossage gives up these two runs, and he has to go back out again for the bottom of the ninth. The Sox had two on for Carl Yastrzemski with two out in the bottom of the ninth when he popped out the foul territory. So much like with Steve Bartman, the the memory is that they were going to win— and that's the moment that specifically cost them the whole thing. No, there was a whole game still after that. And, like, you know, the Sox had their opportunities. If Carl Yastrzemski knocks in, like, a, a two-run double there, Bucky fucking it's Dent is, is nobody. There, there is no Bucky fucking Dent. It's, it's, it's so fascinating to dive in deep on a game like that and realize just how close the entire story was to being different. But... On the basis of that game 163 victory, the Yankees do go into the ALCS. Bucky cools off. I mean, he just knocked in three RBI. That's a lot for Bucky. Um, So he only hits 200 for the ALCS. But we do need to talk about this 1979 World Series. Or excuse me, this 1978 World Series. We do need to talk about this 1978 World Series. We don't need to talk about the 1979 World Series. (laughs) We don't need to talk about that one. But for 1978, it's Yankees-Dodgers. It is the L.A. Dodgers at this point, but you still have that classic matchup. And Bucky Dent has the hottest two-week hitting streak of his life. Goes 10 for 24 with 7 RBI and a 417 batting average as the Yankees take the 78 World Series in six games. And for his efforts, Bucky Dent becomes the first shortstop in the history of baseball to win the World Series MVP. Real, I guess, like, I guess you really don't have any shortstops once that's a thing that can hit worth fucking anything. It's, yeah, so, I mean, you had Corey Seager in 2020. You also have Jeter as a more modern iteration as well, but. I mean, Corey Seager twice. Mm -hmm. True, yes. Uh, Correa, did Correa have one in 2017? No, Pena. Pena got the World Series MVP two years ago. So. This modern wave of shortstops with pop. Really, I think we can trace it all back to 1978 and Bucky Dent. He's the one who really got it started. Also, just, I I mean, fascinating to note because everybody just thinks of that moment for Bucky Dent. But no, he actually goes on to be a significant reason why they win the World Series. He gets the World Series MVP. Incredible discovery for me in my research. 1979. Falls off a little bit, but 80 and 81, he's playing some of the best baseball of his life. He makes the All-Star game in both of those seasons. Coming into 1982, starts with the Yankees, but they do trade him to the Texas Rangers. Instead of selling his New Jersey home where he resided, he would instead rent it out to Don Zimmer. So Don Zimmer moved in. And this trade is kind of marking the end of his playing career. He lasts two seasons for the Rangers. 
He does go to the Royals in 84 for an 11-game cameo. And at that point, he retires from his playing career. But Bucky is a loyal Yankee, and he wants to commit himself to service of the franchise. So he becomes the manager for their AAA affiliate in Columbus. In 1989, the Yankees are an underperforming franchise, so they fired Dallas Green, uh, who would then go on to be the manager of the 93 Phillies, beloved team in this city. But they fired Dallas Green, and just for the interim, for the last 40 games of the year, they say, Bucky Dent, come on up, be the interim manager for the rest of the season. So Bucky takes the helm for the manager uh, for the Yankees, and it's interesting to note some of the players he gets to manage. So... Former teammate Goose Gossage, still on the roster. He's the manager. You also have Don Mattingly. And you also have Deion Sanders. So this is quite a clubhouse that (laughs) Bucky Dent gets to preside over. That's a great trio. (laughs) Yeah, just a great group to have together in the room. And Bucky knows what the deal is. He is the steward. He's just coming in to be the interim. He knows, like, the, the plan is that Billy Martin is going to come back for 1990, and he's going to take back over as the, the manager. The problem is that on Christmas Day of 1989, Billy Martin dies in a car accident. So, this plan is now shot to shit. The Yankees interview a few other candidates to try to take over, but what they ultimately decide is, Coming off of this traumatic incident for our franchise, the best thing is stability. Let's bring back Bucky for the 1990 season. He starts off his first season without the interim tag. It's not going too well. The Yankees are 18-31 and 31 when they make a trip into Boston. They drop the first game of the series, and so it is that George Steinbrenner unceremoniously announced to the media the firing of Bucky Dent. I cannot emphasize enough the absolute firestorm this created in the New York sports media market. Everything creates a firestorm in the New York sports media market, especially everything George Steinbrenner ever did. I was about to say, surely they handled this with a a calm and rational approach, and there weren't several poorly executed puns on the front page of the New York Post. Well... First of all, like it's not even just the New York media. Dan Shaughnessy of the Boston Globe was one of the first to criticize it. Bill Pennington was on the beat for the New York Times, major critic of the move. But it's the color commentator for MSG Network, who is the local affiliate TV broadcast rights holder for the New York Yankees. It was Tony Kubek, who was a Yankee man himself, played all nine seasons with the Yankees, four-time All-Star appearance. He is a Yankee through and through. To quote from him, George Steinbrenner mishandled this. You don't take Bucky Dent at the site of one of the greatest home runs in Yankee history and fire him and make it a media circus for the Boston Red Sox. He then stared into the camera and defiantly said to Steinbrenner, you don't do it by telephone either, George. You do it face to face, eyeball to eyeball. If you really are a winner, you should not have handled this like a loser. George, you're a bully and a coward. What all this does, it wrecks your credibility with your players, with the front office, and in baseball more than it already is, if that's possible. You mishandled this entirely. The Yankees' radio affiliate would run editorials in between innings for a week after, calling on Steinbrenner to sell the team because of his firing of Bucky Dent in this manner in Boston at a site that is supposed to be where he holds probably the most fond memory of his professional career. And now it is the site where he was fired, learning from the media. 
that he was fired is really what I think most people took grievance with. George Steinbrenner did not have the guts to call in one of the icons of his franchise, one of the biggest pieces of Yankees lore, and he just announces it via the media. Fuck the Steinbrenners, now and forever. But our boy's going to be okay. Bucky lands on his feet. He spends the next four seasons with the St. Louis Cardinals on the staff of Joe Torre. Then spends the next seven years. Yeah, Yankees legend. (laughs) Fuck you guys. I'll go with this other Yankee over here. Does end up with the Texas Rangers for seven years. 2006, 2007, he was on the Reds bench. There's a couple other footnotes that are worth mentioning for his career. In 2004, with the Yankees staring down the possibility of blowing a 3-0 lead to the Boston Red Sox, they did call on Bucky Dent to throw out the first pitch at Game 7. It is a tremendous effort to whip up that juju. Uh, and he threw that first pitch out to Yogi Berra. They tried to it awaken the curse of the one last time. It did nothing. It didn't work. I think the Yankees it, actually it were down like... It all of us. It was a lot better that we saw you trying that hard to avoid <laughs> the outcome that did come to pass. That game seven was like the Yankees were down like ten nothing like very quickly. Evan there was Brown zero drama to was that. was awful. He, he he. I mean, I think every Yankee fan knew after three zero, like the Boston team felt like they had the world underneath their feet and could do everything, and they needed to get a hot start. And once Kevin Brown threw like his first pitch, like oh, this is not the day. Once it came back to New York, I think is when it got real. Like even losing game four, even you're like, okay, whatever. Just get him in game five. And then when you didn't get him in game five, that's when it's like, well, shit. That's when it starts sinking in. They tried tried to call on Bucky then. It wasn't quite enough. And with his stint with the, the Reds on the bench, so basically ends his time in the public spotlight. One other thing that I do want to mention, though, Bucky Dent apparently was like a sex symbol in the 70s and 80s. Like, he was a pinup model. Girls allegedly would buy front row seats just to be on field level so that they could see Bucky Dent. Flight attendants would be asked, who's that? And they'd have to point out Bucky Dent. For some reason or another, we all know chicks dig the long ball. Bucky Dent didn't hit a lot of them, but I guess the one he did hit was significant enough to create this kind of presence. I mean, I'm looking at a picture now. I get it. He's I get it. There's, there are some magazine covers I'm finding right now where I very much so get it. Yeah, I mean, Bucky Bucky knows who he is. He knows what he does. His agent knew his value, and he knew his own value. I hope that we can at least appreciate, like, Bucky Dent is known for this singular moment, for this home run, and for being Bucky fucking Dent to the Boston Red Sox. But his career shows that we can't just let one moment define us. He was the best fielding shortstop in the history of the New York Yankees. He was the first Hialeah kid. He was the first shortstop to ever win World Series MVP. He's a man so beloved by New York that the entire fan base would demand Steinbrenner to sell the team after he was fired when he was doing a pretty shitty job. Like, by all accounts, he should have been fired. And people were still mad that he was fired. Most impressively, and I hope that I've been able to pull this off, I might have been able to sell him as the first Yankee that James likes. And if I was able to do that, then I would also hope that he can gain entry into our hall. We're going to talk about this fucking guy for this fucking week is Bucky fucking Dent. 
we got to give special consideration of Babe Ruth. I mean, that's that's its own case. That's also a ball case beyond anything. I'm thinking about it now beyond that. And people who spent more time with the Yankees than any other team, because there's plenty, you know, Ichiro is probably my favorite non-Babe Ruth, quote unquote, Yankee. Um, Messina? I like Ichiro as a player more than Mike Messina. Mike Messina is fine. Ichiro is Ichiro. But for players who are known as Yankees, by and large. I, I think it might have to be Bucky Dent. At the very least, the first chronologically after Ruth that I can have any affection for. Because, like, if I were to think of it from your perspective, it would be like, okay, which Yankees have inflicted the most pain on Boston? And then if you were to think of a Red Sox that you like the most, which Red Sox have inflicted the most pain on the Yankees? Well, and a Yankee that's so thoroughly associated with their period in the 80s where they suck. Like, it's the only part where the Yankees suck. And he has such an attachment to, like, a couple of the last shitty vestiges of the Yankees before they became a fully operational Death Star again. And there is something to be said for, like, him being the avatar of that period, of that beautiful space where, like, we didn't all just want to shoot ourselves every time we see Navy pinstripes. But speaking of things that inspire revulsion, there is still one more fucking guy. Before we get into that, Diaz made me think about this, and I was looking it up. There has been one second baseman ever to win World Series MVP, the lowest of any position type. Can either of you guess who it is? Does Ben Zobras count? No, Ben Zobras does not count uh, in is, this uh, Is it X-Team? Thing. No. Was well, Snyder played short? Oh, uh, Jackie Robinson? Soriano. It was Bobby Richardson. Bobby Richardson. The only second baseman and the only World Series loser to be World Series MVP. Second baseman or losers is what you're saying. I hear you. Yes. Hear you. If they were good, they'd be shortstops. <laughs> was like, that was like that with the uh, with the Super Bowl MVPs for the longest. Like Chuck Howley was the only defender to get it, and he was on the losing team until like they gave it to some D back for Buccaneers. In, like it wasn't it? Wasn't it Barber? Oh, Ray Lewis. Excuse me, Ray Lewis. Ray Lewis got it though. So. No, you're right. You're right. I oh, know. Now you may have forgotten because Ray Lewis did Derek not get Tom to Ray. talk about going to Disney World because Ray Lewis was facing some <laughs> murder charges at the time. But it was Ray Lewis. Uh, <laughs> did, uh, Dexter Jackson was Dexter the Jackson, uh, yes. Super Bowl MVP. I don't think he ever made a Pro Bowl either, which is incredible. At, but after what that else is aside, incredible? So I was thinking about this after last week. I know when we first started this podcast, we had the thought of it being guys who had already retired. And when we were talking about Chuck last week, I was thinking maybe a better parameter is guys outside of the public conscious. Like, I think that's a better way to try to remember people because there are plenty of people who have retired that we still talk about all the time and people that have retired that we have totally forgotten about. So with that in mind, I was trying to think along those lines. And when I hear this fucking guy or that fucking guy, the first person I think of is Nick Kyrgios, who I think would have been perfect in like five to ten years. But... He's still like he just had an interview with the Athletic two days ago that I read, and I think that he's still gonna be making headlines for a while. So I was like, that that's a little too much. But there's a second guy who fits the bill just as well. And if he hears me talk about him, he might ask me, 
Why Always Me. So today, I want to talk about Mario Balotelli. Oh, Balotelli. I know you're going to get to it, and I, and I won't say specifically what, but I remember him coming to America, and that being my introduction to Mario Balotelli. I have that in here. Of they, course, I won't. There's a I lot. I, I'm going I'm to have to go a little fast because there's a lot of Mario Balotelli. Uh, this fucking guy. Because of this fucking guy. So Mario Balotelli was born Mario Bawa in Palermo, Sicily to Ghanaian immigrants. Uh, he suddenly moved to Brescia when he was two. And then when he was three, he was placed in foster care with the Balotelli family when his own parents were unable to pay for his health care needs. And it was a weird like setup where he would spend weekends with his birth parents and weekdays with the foster parents. But eventually, he ended up just being fostered full-time by the Balotellis, adopted their last name, you know, considers them his real parents, etc. So his parents, for as he considers, are Francesco Balotelli and Silvia Balotelli. Silvia, the Jewish daughter of Holocaust survivors and... Balotelli being essentially raised kind of Jewish will be a thing that comes into play at some points in his career. Balotelli, like many young kids in Italy, plays a lot of soccer growing up. And he is good enough that he makes the academy for his local team, Lumezzane, which was 20 minutes from the Balotelli family house. At the age of 15, he gets promoted to their first team, and he makes his debut in a Syria C match against Padova in April 2006. He trials with Barcelona at the age of 15, doesn't work out, but Inter Milan want him. And so they sign him on loan with a mandatory buy option of 150,000 euros to co-own him. In Italy, they kind of have a weird partial ownership thing where it isn't uncommon for a big team to buy half of a promising young player and then hope that they develop and then buy the other half and get a cut price deal overall compared to waiting, hoping they develop and then spending more for them. And the smaller teams like it because they get a guaranteed portion of a fee now and then more later. So enter by half of Mario Balotelli. A year later, they buy the other half for 190,000 euros. So a little bit more than the first half. Did they go top half, bottom half, or did they go left half, right half? I think they got to go left half, right half, so they can say his right leg can score goals for us. And if he goes to the right with a header, he can score for us. He, he has to be like playing off of setups by other people. He can't be, you know, dribbling clearly. What's the thing where, like, they say they're going to cut the baby in half to see who the mom is? Uh, King, King Solomon. The wisdom of King Solomon. Yeah, King Solomon. That's, that's Which of you clubs like. would take half of this Balotelli? Ah, the one that would not cut him in half. You are the true club for this player. So Balotelli uh, makes his inter-debut uh, in a friendly in November 8th, 2007, Weirdly, Inter was taking part in Sheffield United's 150th anniversary celebrations. I have no idea how Sheffield United got Inter to be a part of that, but Inter wins 5-2 and Young Balotelli scores two goals. One month later, he makes his full Serie A debut in a uh, 2-0 win against Cagliari. From this point, he is playing pretty frequently, even though he's only 17. He scores two goals against Juventus in the Coppa Italia quarterfinals. 
And overall, during that first season, he makes 11 league appearances for the Inter team that won the Scudetto, which is the trophy for the team that wins Serie A. In my head, I've been doing the Tommy DeVito hands for like the last two minutes of everything you've been saying. Mm-hmm. The Scudetto. I have to make the Lienza family in me proud. I got a lot of Sicilian ancestors that'd be pissed. Despite being probably the brightest Italian youth prospect, Balotelli to this point did not have Italian citizenship. A lot of European countries, you know, you're not automatically granted citizenship if you're born there, if your parents are not citizens. We had this thing with Giannis, where Giannis was born in Greece, but because his parents did not have Greek citizenship, he did not automatically get Greek citizenship. Same with Balotelli. So, sensing opportunity, the Ghanaian national team called the 17-year-old Balotelli up to the senior team itself. Like, we're going to skip all the youth teams. Like, we want you to play for the senior team. And Balotelli immediately turned them down because he considers himself Italian. On his 18th birthday, he officially received Italian citizenship and said, quote, this is even more exciting than making my debut in Serie A. The best birthday present I could receive now would be a call to join the Italy squad, although I'd be happy to play for the under-21 team. Two weeks later, he gets that second wish and gets called to the U-21s where he makes his debut and scores a goal against Greece. So pretty, pretty good month for Mario. In November, he becomes the youngest interplayer at 18 years and 85 days to score in a Champions League game when he scored in a 3-3 game against Anorthosis Famagusta of Cyprus. This beat the previous record held by Obafemi Martins. But the rest of his 2008-2009 season is marred by some big incidents that may be a bad omen of, of things to come. First, Inter's coach, Jose Mourinho, a this-fucking-guy of his own, essentially benched and banished Baldelli from the first team in January for not giving enough effort. He said, as far as I'm concerned, a young boy like him cannot allow himself to train less than people like Figo, Cordoba, and Zanetti. Essentially saying that even these elder statesmen who maybe could be forgiven for taking a break are training harder than this 18-year-old kid who should be doing his best to try to, like, stake a claim to the team. He does get back into the first-team squad, and then in April, in a 1-1 match against Juventus, Palatelli gets racially abused by the Juventus fans. This is something that is going to happen a lot to Mario, unfortunately. It's so bad that Juventus get a one-match home fan ban. They're like, you can't control your fans, you can't stop them from being racist, so you can't have fans in this game. And at this point, like, this is 2008-2009, where Italy did not really care much about racism. I mean, they're having these issues this year with significant racist chants. It was much worse back then. If the league takes action against your opponents for racist things happening, it is interesting it's happening in like the mid to late 2000s when Moneyball is also happening because if Moneyball is going on there, I would see the market inefficiency as like, oh man, I should hire some black people so I can get all of my opponent's fans to get all of their games canceled. <laughs> <laughs> Let me goad them into this. I mean, it could Why should work. we sign Balotelli? Because he gets racially abused. <laughs> see... It's something's fucked up, but there's something that's along those lines that we will talk about later. Oh, I love it when I'm joking. So, despite this rough period, Baltelli does get to celebrate a second straight Scudetto, uh, enters fourth in a row, and he gets eight league goals, again, at only 18 years old, which is 
Not bad at all. After this season, Balotelli's part of the Italian uh, under-21 team at the under-21 Euros held in Sweden. In Italy's first match against the host Swedes, Balotelli scores the opening goal. 15 minutes later, he gets a straight red for kicking out at Pontus Vernblum, who later admitted to goading him into it, knowing he could take advantage of it. And so Balotelli kicks out at him, gets sent off, and that's pretty much the end of his tournament uh, because of the suspension. Balotelli's disciplinary problems and his difficult relationship with Mourinho continued in the 2009-2010 season. In November, after a 1-1 draw against Roma, Mourinho said that Balotelli came close to a zero rating in a rant about how much his players sucked. A month later, in a Derby d'Italia match against Juventus, Balotelli gets elbowed by Juventus midfielder Felipe Melo. He gets elbowed in the shoulder. Balotelli pretends that he gets hit in the face, immediately grabs his face, starts rolling around on the ground, and he gets booked for diving. Melo also gets booked because he did intentionally elbow him, even if it was in, like, the shoulder-chest area. And that's Melo's second yellow and gets sent off. And everyone is so pissed at Balotelli, even though Melo did actually elbow him, that a massive brawl starts with Thiago Moda and Gigi Buffon fighting each other uh, in the center of the pitch. Buffon ran all the way from the goal, like, to midfield to just fight Thiago Mota. To get a goalie fight in soccer... Yeah. Is elite. Well, to, to start it off by flopping so hard that even when the other guy gets a foul that sends him off, you're still getting tagged for flopping. Yeah, it, it was pretty bad. And gets into another altercation with Mourinho. is not including their squad for the Champions League round of 16 against Chelsea. Gets criticized by a bunch of senior players, including Captain Javier Zanetti and uh, Marco Marazzi who you may know as the guy who got headbutted by Zinedine Zidane in the World Cup final. And even his own agent is criticizing him publicly. One month later, he wears an AC Milan shirt on Italian television, which leads to him getting insane abuse from Inter fans. And Inter make him apologize. And he had to put out an official apology on the Inter website, saying, I'm sorry for the situation that has been created recently. I am the first person who has suffered because I adore football and I want to play. And now I am waiting in silence so I can return to being useful to my team. I want to put the past behind me, look to the future, and concentrate on the upcoming commitments and make myself ready. Which is a phenomenal apology in that he does not apologize for anything that he did and says that he is the actual victim there. And let's all move on. And I, I very much love it. Did nothing but wrong. he's good. So he gets recalled to the team. Scores immediately in his first game against Bologna. And then a couple weeks later, in the semifinals of the Champions League against Barcelona, he has a poor performance. Inter fans are booing him. And at the after the final whistle, he tears off his shirt and throws it on the ground in disgust. And that gets him benched for the Champions League final. Zanetti again said that he can't allow himself to behave like this. And the team is just frustrated with him. So... Although Inter do win the 2010 Champions League final against Bayern, Balotelli plays no part in that game. A month later, his public image continues to deteriorate after he and some friends are caught firing air pistols at the Piazza della Repubblica. They're just hanging out in broad daylight shooting air pistols. So, so this is daylight. This is not even like nighttime or blowing off. I, be, I believe it was daylight, yes. God, that's stupid. From my understanding. Regardless, he's still good enough that he gets 
called up to make his first appearance for the Italian national team in a friendly against the Ivory Coast. But Inter has had enough of him, so two days after making this senior debut, they sell him to newly rich Man City, who are looking to make a splash now that they have all this crazy oil money. Within days of joining City, Balotelli gets involved in a car crash, and one of the reports is that he was carrying 5,000 pounds in cash at the time, and the police officer asked why he had such a large sum. He said, because I am rich. Can't, can't beat that logic. I appreciate it when rich people own it. Week after that, he makes his debut uh, in the Europa League, but tears his meniscus and ends up being out for over a month. So it takes him until the end of October to make his Premier League debut in a loss against Arsenal, then gets his first start a week later in a loss against Wolverhampton. He gets his first goals in a game against West Brom, but in that same game, he gets a straight red for violent conduct after hitting Yusuf Malumbu. Uh, one month later, he wins the Golden Boy Award, the award given to the best under-21 male player in Europe. At the ceremony, he makes a pretty big scene, claiming that of all the previous winners, a list that included Wayne Rooney, Messi, Cesc Fabregas, Cunaguero, only Messi was possibly better than him. And he also claimed that he had never heard of second place finisher Jack Wilshire, despite having just lost to Jack Wilshire in Arsenal like two weeks beforehand. Even though it's an Italian magazine that runs this major competition and they love Balotelli, people were like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> what the hell are you doing? I love, like, there's nothing I can think of to say that speaks to Messi's power and influence in the soccer world more He's than that this clearly delusional man is still like, oh, look, I'm not better than Messi, but everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> so a week after that, you know, he kind of shows why people were right to vote for him in that he gets his first Premier League hat trick and a 4 nothing win against Aston Villa. Next couple months are pretty uneventful. He gets sent off again uh, in a Europa League game against Dynamo Kiev. But even with the multiple red cards and only scoring six league goals, his debut season does end with a bang as he gets named the man of the match in the 2011 FA Cup final as Manchester City defeated Stoke 1-0 to win their first trophy in 35 years. So everyone's like, all right, this 20-year-old, kind of a hothead, but he did win us our first trophy in multiple generations. So maybe things are fine. Maybe we can, we can be happy about this. Preseason, before the 2011-2012 season, Manchester City go to America, and they play a match against the LA Galaxy. I vividly remember watching this, because this is very soon after I had started really getting into soccer. So Man City, even at this point when they're not you know a juggernaut, they're a much better team than LA. Baltelli gets sent through on goal. And he slows up right before shooting and then turns and does a spinning back heel that goes like eight yards wide of the net. This is like my first memory of watching any Premier League teams was this game. And the stadium goes nuts. Everyone is booing him. His teammates are yelling at him like, what the fuck is wrong with you? His coach, Roberto Mancini, starts screaming at him from the sideline and immediately subs him off and gets into it with him in the sideline. 
Balotelli allegedly, you know, said that he thought he heard a whistle and that he was offside, so he wasn't taking it seriously. But to everyone in that stadium, it looked like this guy thought he was so much better than everyone else that he just decided not to even try. And it was not a good omen for the next couple months because it took a while for Balotelli to recover from this. Had a really slow start to the year. And then on October 22nd, him and his friends accidentally set his house on fire with a bunch of fireworks. That was well delivered. Yeah. And this firestorm caused a massive media storm, and people went nuts on Balotelli. It didn't help that it was the day before the Manchester Derby against Manchester United. Despite that, Balotelli still starts that game. And he scores the first goal, where he then lifts up his shirt to reveal a second shirt that says, Why Always Me? A now iconic image in Premier League history. He then scores a second goal. He then goes through on goal and gets Johnny Evans sent off. And Manchester City wins 6-1 to over United. And not only are people not mad at him about the fireworks anymore, he is named Greater Manchester's Ambassador for Fireworks Safety that same week. Clearly, we should have been setting off more fireworks, is, is I imagine the response. I picture him going into the locker room. Hey, we got to do this for my house that just died because I set off fireworks. So I got two good quotes here. Mancini, right after the game, said of Balotelli, the problem is because of his age, he can make some mistakes. He's Mario. He's crazy, but I love him because he's a good guy. And then there's an article from The Guardian that detailed the press conference where he was named the ambassador for fireworks safety for Greater Manchester. Quote, It is important children should not mess with fireworks. They can be very dangerous if they are not used in the right way. People should follow the firework code, warns a man who had to escape from his burning home early on Saturday after fireworks were set off through a bathroom window. Two fire crews were called and Balotelli escaped unharmed. That really sums it up. The same week at the annual fireworks display in Kent, a 36-foot-tall bonfire effigy of Balotelli was unveiled. He had a Super Mario hat on, a house in his right hand, and a giant TNT firework in his left. This feels like, like you know how so many anti-smoking ads just make smoking look so cool? Like, that's what this feels Kids, like for fireworks. You, you definitely shouldn't commit arson. Look at all of the terrible consequences you will have to suffer if you <laughs> set fireworks off inside your house. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Unless you're Super Mario Telly. Because right after this, it's the November international break, and he scores his first ever international goal in a 2 nothing win against Poland. Everything's looking up, feeling good, comes back, and then probably gets sent off against Liverpool. <laughs> It's a roller coaster. Because then, just a couple weeks later, City had a big match coming up against Chelsea. And there is, like, a curfew in the time leading up before these matches to make sure everyone's, like, ready for them. And he breaks this curfew to go to a curry house, which is any South Asian-style restaurant in the UK. He signed autographs, posed for pictures with fellow diners, and was involved in a mock sword fight using rolling pins. Man City launched an internal investigation, and it led to a great ESPN headline of Mario Balotelli in hot water at Manchester City after Curry. What's the investigation for? He went out and got... I'm not saying don't punish him, but what's the investigation for? (laughs) They know where he went. They know what he did. There are pictures of it. One month later, January, 
He comes on as a sub against Tottenham, and he stamps on Scott Parker. He was already booked, should have gotten a second yellow, but the ref didn't see it. He then scores an injury time penalty to win the game for City. But because the ref didn't see it, they can punish him retroactively. And he gets charged with violent conduct and suspended for four games. He's out for about a month and a half, comes back, goes on a scoring streak. Everything's looking up again. And then he gets another red card against Arsenal in City's 1-0 loss and gets banned for three matches. One for the two yellow cards and two because he already had two previous red cards during the season. And after that match, it seemed like Mancini was just done with him. He said, I finished my words for him. I've finished. I love him as a guy, as a player. I love him. He's not a bad guy and is a fantastic player. But at this moment, I'm very sorry for him because he continues to lose his talent, his quality. I hope for him, he can understand that he's in a bad way for his future. And he can change his behavior in the future. But I'm finished. But if you know anything about the 2011-2012 title race, Balotelli is not finished. In their last game against Queen's Park Rangers, trailing, needing multiple goals to pit Manchester United for the title, Mancini turns to Mario Balotelli off the bench. And in the 94th minute, he assists Sergio Aguero, who scores the winner to give City their first league title since 1968. Despite you know his uncertain standing, he has now won multiple titles for multiple clubs even if the managers have always hated him. And he gets included in Italy's Euro 2012 squad. Before the tournament, because he's someone who's experienced a lot of racist abuse in the past, and this tournament is being held in Poland and Ukraine, two places that are infamous for racist fans, he said he would kill anyone who threw a banana at him and would walk off the pitch if anyone racially abused him. Which, fair, the walking off part. And if he wants to kill someone... Yeah, I can say that. Killing part two. Just like how apparently the Raiders are now up 42 to nothing over the Chargers in the first half. Holy shit. (laughs) Brandon Staley's getting fired at halftime. As somebody who chose to go against the team starting Austin Eckler as their RB1, I am very happy with my selection. You know, Aiden O'Connell might break some records tonight. But in Italy's first match of the Euros, Balotelli becomes the first black player to appear for Italy in a major tournament. Never before. And this is 2012, so that's that's saying something. Uh, this game's a 1-1 draw against Spain. Solid result. One week later, he scores his first major international goal in a 2-0 win against Ireland. When he attempted to celebrate, Leo Bonucci ran over and covered Balotelli's mouth with his hands because he was worried that he would say something that would get him sent off. So even when he's scoring and playing well, his teammates are too afraid that something bad's going to happen. He starts against England in the quarterfinals. He scores the first penalty of their shootout win over England, and things are looking good for Italy. Prior to the semifinals against Germany, Balotelli gets interviewed. They asked him why he doesn't really celebrate when he scores, and he said, when I score, I don't celebrate because it's my job. When a postman delivers letters, does he celebrate? The very next day, Balotelli scores twice within the first 20 minutes in Italy's semifinal game against Germany. After scoring the second goal, he rips off his shirt and just flexes for the crowd in a picture and video that is one of the many iconic Balotelli moments. And for the record, all post people are now also allowed to do that. 
Yes, they rip off their sh- rip off their polos and flex after delivering the mail. Italy does lose the final in a rematch against Spain for nothing, but Balotelli is named to the team of the tournament and is the joint top scorer. And once again, we're at a Balotelli high. So what happens next? He maintains his excellence. He scores one goal in 14 games in the next season for City. Gets fined so much for his poor disciplinary record that former teammate uh, Micah Richards said that they used to donate team fines to charity and that by Christmas they had 100000 from Balotelli alone. And they used it to make sure a lot of local organizations had good Christmases. So at least his fines are going to a good cause. Balotelli does try to sue Manchester City to get some of his fine money back. Uh, it doesn't work, and they've finally had enough. So by January, they sell him to AC Milan, the hated rivals of Inter Milan, as we've already uh, discussed. There are pervasive rumors and allegations that Silvio Berlusconi, who was the owner of AC Milan, signed Balotelli in order to help him beat allegations of racism and gain extra votes in the upcoming Italian general election as he attempted to become prime minister for the fourth time. So, So, James, that is where that previous one discussion comes in. So Mario Balotelli was Silvio Berlusconi's, hey, I have a black friend, I can't be racist. I can't be El Racisto. It's it's better than that. It's, hey, I can't be racist. I just spent $20 on buying a black guy to make my team the best. A racist would spend so (laughs) much less money on this young black gentleman. Exactly. And you know what? Berlusconi did make the Italian Senate, but he did not become prime minister again. So who knows if it really worked the way he wanted. But Balotelli himself starts strongly with Milan. You know, a bit of a pattern at this point. Scores 12 goals in 13 games. Gets racially abused again. Goes off to Italy. Scores two goals in the Confederations Cup. Does Italy finish third? And then he has an entire season of like nothing really crazy happening. Like, maybe for the first time. 2013-2014, no major off-the-pitch incidents, no noted racist abuse, scores 14 league goals to lead the team. Things look so good that he gets selected for Italy's 2014 World Cup squad. He scores the winning goal in their first match over England. Said that playing in the World Cup for the first time was a wonderful sensation to experience, and that he dedicated the goal to his, quote, future wife. Fanny Nguesha. The pair of them never married and Italy lost their next two matches were eliminated in the group stage. So the good feelings did not last. I'm not going to say he should have stayed at AC Milan, but Valtelli then makes the bad mistake of joining Liverpool, who were looking to replace Luis Suarez. He immediately gets criticized for swapping shirts with Pepe from Real Madrid at halftime of a Champions League game. Where Brendan Rodgers, a.k.a. The Broad, says it's something that doesn't happen here and shouldn't happen here. That is pretty wild, <laughs> trading jerseys at halftime. At halftime. Not something you want to do. And I've seen you, a, like, a lot of other people get the second half? A couple weeks after that, Balotelli reposts a Lad Bible post on Instagram that gets him accused of racism and anti-Semitism. This post is a picture of Mario, the Nintendo character, Specifically, it was Paper Mario, and the caption read, I'm quoting this, so don't hate me. Don't be racist. Be like Mario. He's an Italian plumber, created by Japanese people, who speaks English, and looks like a Mexican. 
And then at the bottom, in a different font, which it is unclear if Balotelli added this himself because only screenshots remain. Neither this nor the original post are still up. It says dot, 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 jumps like a black man and grabs coins like a Jew. In response to criticisms, he wrote, my mom is Jewish, so all of you shut up, please. I have a black Jewish friend. It's me. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's like, I can't be racist against black people or anti-Semitic. I am black and Jewish. I also can't be (laughs) anti-Italian racist. But it doesn't work. He gets suspended for a match and fined 25K. It takes 13 league games for him to get his first Premier League goal for Liverpool. It's a 83rd minute winner against Spurs at Anfield. But he scores just one league goal that season and four goals total in 28 appearances. And is considered a massive flop. Liverpool are like, we got to get this guy out. So they loan him back to AC Milan at the start of the 2015-16 season. But he struggles again and only scores one league goal again. And so at this point, no one wants him. So they terminate his contract. And he joins Nice of League One in France, signing a one-year deal. And he scores 15 goals in 23 games. And then he gets racially abused by Bastia fans in Corsica. And then a week after that, he gets a straight red card for insulting a referee in English, thinking that the referee couldn't understand him because the referee would only speak French. Did not work. He gets a two-match ban for that. On the same day, Bastia gets a three-match fan ban because it was confirmed that they had racially abused Balotelli. So one day, Balotelli is vindicated in that, yes, he was racially abused and also suspended for verbally abusing a ref, thinking that the ref couldn't speak that language. Despite all this, he re-signs with Nice for a second season, finishes with a career-high 18 league goals and another eight goals across all competitions. Things are looking good. He looks like he finally has a home. A little bit out of the spotlight, but still in a top-five European league. But you just know things are too good to be true for Mario. He shows up late and out of shape to preseason training, gets suspended for the first three league matches just by the team for not fulfilling his contractual duties, and manager Patrick Vieira has enough of him. said that he has no future with Nice. Quote, when it comes to Mario, I want to answer back or just slam him up against the wall or leave him hanging by his collar on the coat rack. But I can't, as I'm no longer a player. If he was still a player, he would have beaten the shit out of Mario Balotelli. But because he was his manager, he couldn't do it. I also read it as, like, kind of intimating to his team, hey, guys, I'm not saying do it. I'm just saying I would have done it. (laughs) I'm I'm just saying if you do it, I won't punish you, and I might actually give you more playing time. But I'm not saying to do it. Well, unfortunately, the Nice players did not have the chance to do it because they canceled Balotelli's contract, and he makes a move to Marseille, where he scores eight goals in 15 games and then gets suspended for the last game of the regular season after another red card against Montpellier. Over the past five and a half seasons, Balotelli has bounced around Europe, playing for six different teams. In August of 2019, he signs this hometown club, Brescia, on a free transfer, scores a goal for them against Napoli, gets racially abused again by Hellas Verona, picks up the ball, kicks it into the crowd, and walks off the pitch until players from both teams go and try to get him to continue playing. Eventually, they do convince him to keep playing. He scores a goal, but they lose. Scores again against Lazio. Gets racially abused by them. 
like we're well into the double digits of racial abuse that this guy has, has had to you know suffer from. Brescia, despite Balotelli, get relegated, and he repeatedly misses training in the summer and gets his contract canceled again. He moves to Syria B side Monza for a little bit, doesn't work, joins Turkish club Adana Demirspor, scores 18 goals. Things are looking good. So he gets a move to FC Sion in Switzerland. And that's a flop. Sion's president says this lad thinks that the rules that govern a team are made for other people rather than him and said that they want to sell him to Saudi Arabia to get rid of him. They can't sell him, so they just cancel his contract. Since then, he's returned to Turkey, but the Turkish league is currently suspended because a team president last week rushed the field after a game and punched a ref in the face, sparking a massive brawl that had the president of Turkey essentially pause the entire league. So That's, that's pretty funny. Yeah, so wild shit. You know, soccer stat databases aren't perfect. They didn't really get into collecting this information until into the 2010s. But from what I could verify, Balotelli has played 492 professional games, scored 199 goals, won six major trophies, been carded over 150 times, been sent off 13 times, missed 40 games through suspension, drove three managers in three different countries nuts to the point where they canceled his contracts, and made hundreds of back page headlines. Because of all of that, I felt like Mario Balotelli is, like, he is that fucking guy. The fact that as a striker, you're getting booked almost as many times as you're scoring, but you're still scoring enough that they will play you. That is remarkable. You said it was like 140 times he's been booked? Over 150 times he's been booked. And that doesn't include second yellows, which turn into reds. That's just first yellow cards in games. It feels like trying to sort of compare, okay, does this guy hit enough home runs to justify the strikeouts, except all the strikeouts involve possible injury and almost certainly fines. If you add all yellow cards, all red cards, and all games missed through suspension, it is more than his goals. And his goals are a lot, which is why so many teams kept picking him up, even knowing that he's just as likely to score as he is to do something terrible. Well, and you think how many games he's missed, and he still has 492. Yeah. I mean, that, again, that's one of the things about European soccer is that even when you're past you know, your peak, you can still bounce around a lot. But a lot of those games were like with top teams. He has over 50 games for Inter, over 50 games for City, over 50 games for Milan, over like almost 100 professional games in Ligue 1, those 20 terrible games for Liverpool. It's not like they were all with, you know, lower level teams. He was so good that despite being so frustrating and so much that fucking guy, all of these good teams were like, I'm willing to take that chance. Maybe I'll be the one to fix him. Oh, these these clubs, they delude themselves into thinking Balotelli will play by the team rules, but maybe he'll play by our team rules. And certainly, I mean, some of those clubs, like you're saying, some of those countries and their lower domestic leagues, they don't necessarily have the most exacting standards. You know who does have very exacting standards? This guy, Bunel. And I think it is time for us to apply those standards to these fucking guys. I mean, something in Mario Balotelli's favor. This is definitely our most Italian-American episode to date. I don't know (laughs) if that means anything. 
but it, it certainly is true. And he certainly is the most Italian of these three guys. Definitely the most Italian. Definitely the most firework exposure and ambassadorial experience. Who is a greater threat to public safety? Mario Balotelli with fireworks or James Miller with a motorized fan? Public safety? James Miller. Their own personal safety? Mario Balotelli. (laughs) There was one thing I didn't bring up because there was just, like I said, there's too much to talk about. He was investigated once for possibly hanging out with the mafia. Possibly. Allegedly. (laughs) He allegedly hung out with the mafia a little bit, but, you know, might still more be Mario Balotelli's personal safety that was in question and not the public. He did also fire off even, like, fake guns in a public plaza during the He did do that as well. That That was pretty dumb. Bucky Dent not causing any public health concerns. And I think that is a big positive for Bucky Dent. No public health concerns. The only thing would probably be heart palpitations throughout the greater Boston area. Well, we know James Miller directly caused some heart palpitations. So, I mean, we can't fault Bucky Dent for that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I'm going to, you know, pun intended, go to bat for Bucky here. I, I just think, like, of the category, like, I do think he is the first person to be referred to as that fucking guy. Like, that fucking guy that he hit. I think it's less than 50 career homers. I think 42 is the number. Speaking of numbers, I do have to say it is a shame that Mario Balotelli could not play eight more games for Nice and only played 61 for them. So close, so close. If he got those eight more, it would have been. And it was exactly 40 homers for Bucky Dent in his career. I like Bucky. I like Fan Man. I like Fan Man because Bucky is a very regionalized that fucking guy. Balotelli is a pan-European that fucking guy, but it is limited to Europe. And if you consider Turkey part of Europe for soccer purposes like I do... But Fan Man is an intercontinental, that fucking guy, doing it on both sides of the pond. I just want to put you in a moment again. I want you to picture yourself as one of those intrepid reporters or television crew. They're 40 minutes outside of Boulder City in the middle of the desert as this guy reads to you a pre-prepared Q&A and then flies off towards the mountains. And I just want you to tell me the first three words that come to mind if they're not this fucking guy. Damn, that's a good argument. I, I say that's a that good argument. It is. It is. I admit, though, that I say that in jest because I have thought about this and I think I am leaning elsewhere. Against Bucky Dent, one big fault on his end. He did reject the contract offer from Bill Vec. He did not want to be part of the cultural nucleus taking place on the south side of Chicago at that time, which we've expounded on at length and we're big fans of the Vec Faust era there. Of course, we're not talking about a lot of players, so I get why that wasn't the best situation for him. At the end of the day, there's two things for him. One, while it is not literally his middle name, like Bucking is Bucky Dent's middle name. Another really big hit for Bucky Dent. You know what's a good mark of being a guy? Whether or not you are a playable character in Super Mega Baseball 4, which Bucky Dent absolutely is. (laughs) You made the cut. Yeah, Bucky Dent fits in that world's greater lore very well it's just like my, my argument is going to be that we need to take the the, the the thirty thousand foot view of this hall who are people that should be in the hall of guy 
This is at worst like the third most impactful home run in baseball history. I'll go Mazeroski is ahead of this. And it's hard for me to rank it. Maybe Joe Carter 93 is Joe ahead Carter of this. Up there. I mean, if we're t- so to be clear, uh, Foolish Baseball has done an excellent piece on this. By championship win probability added, the home run hit to tie the Pirates Yankees game that Bill Mazeroski later wins technically as a higher CWPA because the Pirates had been so much more likely to lose before that moment happened. Whereas Bill Mazeroski's took them from a roughly 50% chance to a 100% chance. That being said, Joe Carter's home run is also very, 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 very high up on that all-time list. And I mean, it's just, it's such a significant part of baseball lore. And it's this guy who, as we come to learn, it wasn't just that moment for that playoff run. He, he wins the fucking World Series MVP. Are you kidding that, me? This fucking guy. Do Dodgers fans also say Bucky fucking Dent? Do we have the Dodgers fever pitch? I, to, no, because they've never suffered once <laughs> as fans in their lives. I, I could see them being like vaguely annoyed as they, you know, walk back to the parking lot and say, oh, we'll get them next year. And like, I should clarify... Los Angeles Dodgers fans have never suffered once in their lives. Brooklyn Dodgers fans know nothing but pain. Right. Maybe you get Bucky goddamn Dent. I don't think you get fucking. Bucky gosh darn Dent. Gosh darn, yeah. All right, well, it sounds like we're probably unanimous that it's going to be Bucky Dent. So let's not beat around the bush. And Well, I, I wanted to beat around the bush a little bit for content, but yes, no, it was clearly Bucky Dent. <laughs> Right, with that being the case, look, it's it's one of the most impactful home runs in the history of baseball. But as we always come to learn, it's more than just the moment that makes the fucking guy. It's thinking that your mom is your aunt until you're 10 years old. And then all of a sudden you learn, nope, actually, that's your mom. Being from the South, being the Hylia kid, the original, it's being one of the best fielding shortstops for over a decade in the American League. It's being the first shortstop to ever win MVP. And it's being that fucking guy that hit that homer that barely scraped over the Green Monster seats. Which does remind me, one thing that I wanted to mention, the first time that they had seats at the Green Monster, the first person to sit there was Bucky fucking Dent. That's and was great. received he was received very well by the Red Sox fans. But that aside is now in the past. We're looking into the future. And in the future, which is now... Bucky fucking Dent, welcome to the Hall of Fucking Guy. It is an honor to have you amongst our ranks. It's uh, it's interesting that he is a very good example of someone who moved from Florida to the Yankees versus all of the Yankees fans that moved south to Florida later on in life. <laughs> um, but we're so glad that during his East Coast flights, he can make some time to stop here in the Hall And we appreciate you all once again for stopping here in the hall with us during this lovely holiday season. A happy Hanukkah to any of you that did celebrate. That is wrapped up, of course. And we do have Christmas coming up just one week from this, folks. I do think that you will find something under your tree from the RTG crew that morning. Just want to reassure you, we got something for you. Don't worry. Um, We'll be back still next week. In the meantime, though, thank you all so much for joining us. A special thanks though are due to producer craig and the coders behind him and our musical director don ham for that lovely theme music go birds i'm just gonna keep saying go birds while we're here in the season but that's about all i got go birds raiders just ran a trick play up 42 and scored another touchdown
<laughs> on a wide re- on a wide receiver path to Devontae Adams. Is it half yet? Three minutes after the half, and the Raiders have scored another touchdown, which is why it's now 49 Wild that 70 might not be the most a team scores this year. We will see. Depends how personal they want to make it. You can get 20 more points. Two field goals, two touchdowns. Come on. Do it for the culture. <laughs> uh, we hope that they do, or we hope that they did. One thing I don't have to hope. I know that I've been one of your hosts, James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Yogi Berra once said, when you come to a guy in the road, take it. Cooper Flag did go down in my book from like clear number one to still very obviously number one. By not committing to Maine like he should have. If he had any fucking bravery whatsoever, <laughs> just go to Maine. Go to Maine, average 40 a game, and be Get some the greatest awesome, like, athlete. red lobster NIL. They would name a school after him. Like, that would be the NIL. Be like, yes, we are naming the school of sports management. Yes, we have an entire school dedicated to that now. Just because of you, Cooper Flagg. Jim Montgomery, you are officially the second most beloved player in University of Maine history. (laughs)